Welcome to Hacker in the Fed, presented by Naxo. Naxo is a premier cybersecurity and investigations firm, including blockchain forensics, whose mission to fight cybercrime aligns perfectly with Hacker in the Fed's content. On this episode, we interview Special Agent Aaron Mann with Homeland Security Investigations Cybercrime Unit about HSI's cyber role and career opportunities within HSI. We break down the Colonial Pipeline hack, Hector and I talk about how the darknet is intensifying the insider threat. We get into the mother of all breaches. And finally, the SEC's X account was hacked. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever committed. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. That caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Parbo, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now a founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by my friend and podcast co-host, Hector Monsegor. Hector's a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June 2011 when I arrested Hector and then convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you things going? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's been a minute, but I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. And, it uh, has been a minute. Sure. But I'm, I'm good on my side. How about yourself? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, we'll uh, right from the get-go, we'll lift up the curtain a little bit and let these guys know we are recording in the morning. We don't normally record in the morning, uh, no. but Hector and I got together last night and we looked at each other and had a yawning contest. <laughs> um, and so we said, you know, let's get up early and let's do it first thing because you are hopping on a plane and heading down to Miami. You're lucky. That's bastard. Right. Oh, yeah. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's nice to get out in New York and uh, get away from the cold for a while. Traveling to Miami is the best in, you know, this time of year. I love New York, like, in the beginning part of winter, like, in, like, sure. Thanksgiving and Christmas when everything is mm -hmm. all pretty and the snow's there and all that. Exactly. But now when the snow just sits there and, like, we kind of get mixed in with the street trash and gets a little gross, uh, the yeah. January, February in New York, oh, man, not my thing. Yeah, I agree. I think... Uh I love the city, especially. Okay, so here's my favorite part, and please don't think I'm antisocial, but I love like when it starts snowing, and like the city, everybody disappears, everybody goes home, and I, I love to just go outside at two or three in the morning and just wander around and enjoy the city to myself. You know, I've always loved very early Sunday mornings. If you go into Manhattan like yeah. really early on a Sunday morning, like right when the sun comes up, six o'clock, seven o'clock. It is a whole different, there's no one there. It's just so mm -hmm. quiet, but the buildings are, you know, there. It's it's almost like that Tom Cruise movie, Vanilla Sky, when they shut down Times Square and you're walking oh. around. You go in early on Sunday morning and it's, 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 it's great. The problem is you can't find any place open to get breakfast or anything. Yeah, yeah. Breakfast no, by far, my favorite meal out. Yeah, man. I'm the breakfast guy myself. You know, there's nothing more beautiful than waking up early, walking down the street to the bodega and grabbing like a, an egg and cheese on a roll. You know, uh, it depends on the kind of New Yorker that you are. Right. Because I'm an egg and cheese guy on a roll. 
Others would be like, nah, I want a cream cheese and jelly bagel, right? It all depends. So. Bacon, egg, and cheese on an everything bagel. That's that's my go-to. Go. Toasted. Oh, that is man. the best. And you cannot get it anyplace else except for New York because it just doesn't taste the same. I know I people know. will spitch and moan and say, you know, it's about the water in the bagels. and I, it, I don't know. It just doesn't taste the same anywhere else. Yeah, man. When I used to work over there in Dumbo, uh, for those that don't know, Dumbo is down under Manhattan, Brooklyn overpass. That's in uh, downtown Brooklyn, right next to the water. Really beautiful place. I used to work there before it became like really cool and trendy. I'm not sure you remember. There was a point when Dumbo was kind of like, uh, <laughs> it was like barren land. It was just uh, yeah, old was, factories. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was not pretty over there. But yeah, there was a lot of industry still there. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of industry stuff there. But in the early mornings, right after work. I used to walk down to this Jewish, like, a bagel spot, bakery. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Let me tell you something. Life-changing, those beautiful bagels you ever had in your life. I forgot the name of it, but it's uh, it's by York Street. If anybody so you worked overnights? Yeah, yeah. This is back in the days when um, I used to work with a company that hosted websites. They became DigitalOcean eventually, but mm. um, I used to hang out with those guys, work overnights, you know, seven in the morning, walk to the bagel spot, grab a fresh bagel with some egg and cheese, and uh, and just go home. Did you like working overnights? Like, so you had that job as overnights, and when you were in uh, when you were in Lulsec, you did a lot of overnights because those guys were yeah. different times. Like, did you feel like it aged you, or or did you did you like like being up all night and then sleeping during the day? I loved it, man. Mm. I absolutely loved it. I used to, I was living that vampire life, bro. I was up all night. Um, and then the job, you know, it was it was interesting because we did we were like a web host, and um, it hosted adult sites, right? So it was like at nights the only people that would hit us up is like maybe a random systems administrator, and I used to just hop on my Sidekick, which was like this old phone flip phone back in the days with SSH on it, and I used to just go take a walk, you know, just hang out, walk around at three four in the morning get a random message. And uh, anyways, that lifestyle was cool for me. It, it really was because I was able to talk with a lot of friends that were international. Most of my friends were international anyway. So it really worked out. I'm glad you defined a sidekick. For some reason, when you said sidekick, I thought like a, uh, like a, <laughs> like a um, moped. No, I, I, I couldn't picture you driving around Brooklyn on a moped. No, for, the, <laughs> for those of you that might remember, there used to be a phone that was like a flip phone and yeah. it was Java based. Um, and sold exclusively by T-Mobile, I think AT&T eventually. It was a really badass phone. It wasn't as good as a BlackBerry back then, um, but I had both. I had a Psychic and a BlackBerry. And the cool thing about the Psychic is that his SSH clients would have, like, keeper lives. So you could you could be walking around the street, you could put the phone in your pocket, open back up, boom, you're, you're still back in your terminal, and you go back to work. So, yeah. If anybody worked at that time frame, you know, in the mid-2000s, you would probably see me walking around late at night with my sidekick just rebooting a server or, or you know, restarting a, an Apache web server or something. So what have you thought about the state of cybersecurity so far in 2024? Pretty crazy? Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot of things happening that... Um, from the government side, from the ransomware side, from the security industry itself. So the state of cybersecurity this year, 2024, is interesting, right? So from the government side, here's what we know. Um, the SEC rules have gone into play. Um, 
you know, if you are a publicly traded company and you are breached, you have to do the 8K form um, that gets published online. Um, we saw Microsoft recently published uh, uh, an incident, a breach regarding a nation state actor they're dealing with. Um, now, if you do not notify the SEC and your stakeholders within four days, that's a problem. So what I like about that is it starts to enforce accountability. Someone has to answer the, to these breaches. And for a long time, a lot of these massive corporations would get breached and stay quiet about it. They wouldn't even call you guys at the FBI. They'll try to, you know, they'll try to wing it as far as they can. But, you know, now with these rules in place, uh, things things are probably going to change. You also have, you know, mid to late last year, you had the uh, you had that case against that uh, former CISO of, of uh, a certain company. Right. That set a precedent. So now there's CISOs around the country that are taking their security program more seriously. Otherwise, they may eventually have to face consequences. Right. From the ransomware side, we're seeing a lot of use of zero days and exploits. They're getting sophisticated. Well, we've and talked remember, about that for a while. Now they're getting mm-hmm. rich, too, so they can buy these 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 O-Days. 1,000%. I mean, you and I had a conversation yesterday, right, where we talked about certain exploits that we saw in the 2000s. They were really highly sophisticated, very well-developed. It looks like, you know, professional products in some cases. Back then, you could say if you saw a, 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 a something like that being mm-hmm. deployed, you knew it was nation state because nobody Absolutely. else could do it. Now, these ransomware guys are outbidding nation states. <laughs> yeah, they're outbidding nation states and they could throw extra on top, you know. Um, and so that that changes the game for everyone. And there's not really much we could do against zero days, especially if they're coded in a way that also tries to circumvent EDRs and other endpoint protections, NDRs and network level protections and detections. So yeah, we're in a va- very bad place. And I think organizations uh, are, are forced to uh, to step it up. It's not something you could, you could drag on anymore. So that brings up a good question. And, and I've had you know, many debates about this. We've talked about it here. You know? So it, it seems like a cycle. Um, the ransomware guys are gonna make money they, with that money, they can afford to buy either dev teams to develop O-Days or they can, you know, buy the O-Days and outspend. And then they use the, the, this new technology to get more victims, which then makes more money, which then develops more things, which gets more victims, and it just goes in that cycle. So what the only thing I can think of, I mean, and hopefully you have a better idea, how to break that cycle is to make it illegal to pay the ransomware. I agree. I mean, we've talked about this before, right? Sure. I, I, I am on that same path with you. I mean, we even had a discussion in one of our previous episodes where, um, what was that that special list, for, um, the list of terrorists that you cannot do business with? Was it OFAC? Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't say we would, <laughs> we would blow that list up with ransomware groups because it'll be a whack-a-mole, right? They could just change their names every week. But some sort of, of directive that says, look, if you are, unfortunately have gone through ransomware, um, you know, maybe you could pay under only special circumstances. Um, otherwise, you know, it's probably going to be illegal for you to pay that ransom because you're you're basically contributing to, you know, global cybercrime and so on and so forth. I mean, I know you're not a big government guy, but something's got to be done. You know, there's got to be some sort of uh, uh, restrictions or limits or something. Yeah, that uh, cycle I just described is starting to roll. And it's yeah. just going to roll faster and faster and faster. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, some smart person out there, you know, if it's not our idea of stopping paying the ransom, the, the ransomware guys, like somebody has to figure out how to end of that cycle. 
because it's going to be hard to find, you know, the the development teams that are, are building these because mm-hmm. those guys are pretty good at not having signatures. It's not, you know, the, the, the old Hollywood movies where you see like a uh, bomb <laughs> and, you know, it's like, oh, th- this is this guy's signature bomb. So you always have to cut the blue wire. Sure. Um, you know, it's not like that in, in the O'Day world. So, you know, maybe it is mm-hmm. somewhat you can do it, but 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 not really. Um, so oh, yeah. the payment is, you know, stopping the money flow is really the only thing. And let's say the United States does that. Um, I don't think the other countries are. Um, and so these guys are still going to make money and then use that money to develop tools to attack the United States. So you know, maybe our idea is not the best, but I just don't know how else to end this cycle. Yeah, no, it, it's not going to, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. I mean, look, we, we both know, cause we've discussed this a thousand times over, and by the way, for the audience, we, Chris and I be having these like theoretical conversations or conversations about, you know, the state of certain things. And it's again, we got you have to do like an after hours podcast, bro, because we go into like a <laughs> billion different topics. But the the issue that that we're seeing, especially in this industry, is that yes, you know, there's zero days. Yes, these 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 vendors are putting out software that you know sometimes there are bugs in it, and that happens, right? We're all humans at the end of the day. Um, and even if you have like AI generated software, there may be even bugs in that as well. Um, there's not really much you can do to stop that, right? Um, and you know, I've heard a lot of crazy things like, well, we maybe should outlaw. Um, I- I've heard some extremist things, Chris. I've heard things like, well, maybe we should, you know, we should start investigating these like exploit devs. These guys are basic security researchers, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they're they're just identifying issues, putting together proof of concept, and they just put it up for sale. Now, unless they're part of the conspiracy, unless they're part of like a ransomware group, that's different, right? I'm sure it's a whole different case. Um, but I've heard stuff like that. I've well, also if heard they're, If they're knowingly yeah. selling it to people that are using that tool to commit crime, then they are yeah. part of the conspiracy under U.S. Sure. law. So, sure. Yeah, it gets complicated, man. It gets complicated the more you go because now that person, if they're ever caught, let's say you get a knock on the door by the FBI and they're like, hey, we know you sold three exploits last year. Those three exploits are used by ransomware groups. Where, you know, who did you sell it to? Yada, yada, yada. Well, no, I found a, a marketplace. I had no idea these guys were ransomware actors. You know, it's going to become a whole big mess, right? And, and you know, what scares me about that, especially if the researchers are uh, US specific, they might you know, either leave or stop doing their work, right? Which is problematic because we still need researchers to identify these issues. These guys are very brilliant, guys and gals. They're very brilliant. They're good at really breaking things apart, you know? And unfortunately, these bug bounty programs, you and I have highlighted this. A lot of these bug bounty programs, I mean, we saw we saw Microsoft pay someone for like a, a, a local privilege escalation, like, you know, like a grand or something. Remember that? That was one yeah, of our stories. Certainly. That's, you know, oh, listen, I'm sorry, you know, I, I get it why Microsoft would limit some of these payouts, um, but that could have been an LPE that could have been used in a ransomware campaign, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it could have cost it, some company millions. Yeah, so you know you're gonna pay these guys a grand. They're gonna be like, "Well, I'm not gonna work with Microsoft again. I'll I'll just go to the dark web," right? And you know, so we need to kind of think about all that. And vendors, unfortunately, have to start considering that maybe they need to put together a war chest for those uh, those scenarios. I don't yeah. know. It's complicated. I don't know. Then if companies that start getting attacked start going after like the Microsoft, and if that becomes the root cause and the attack vector, you know, sure. maybe they put them on the hook, and then, then you know, Microsoft is paying more for the, the bug bounties. 
Oh, yeah. Somebody's got to come up with a great solution. I wish it was you and I, uh, but, you know, <laughs> throw out some of these ideas. Maybe one of them sticks. We'll see. Sure. So, but let's get into the first uh, case. And it's, it's not really it's not really an article. So uh, the audience loves to go through a, a, an old hack and kind of figure out the root cause and talk about it and how we can prevent things yeah. like this. Most, some of our most popular episodes are, are going through that. So I decided to kind of look around and I talked to some people and I, and I found an interesting one that has a couple interesting facts in it. And when I talked to people that are in the industry and uh, really, you know, kind of dug into it, um, I told them some things about it and they, they were blown away. They had no idea. Um, so I think this first one's going to be a good one, Hector. So we're going to talk about the Colonial Pipeline hack um, that was in May of, May of 2021. So... Uh, it's the largest publicly disclosed cyber attack against critical infrastructure. And so let's kind of describe so the people that don't know about what the target is. So Colonial Pipeline is uh, is a company that moves oil from refineries to the industry markets. Um, it's one of the largest and most vital oil pipelines in the U.S. It's 5,500 miles of pipeline that starts in Texas and goes all the way up through New Jersey and supplies nearly half of the fuel for the East Coast. Um, and so this attack affected customers and airlines along the East Coast because the pipeline delivers not only gasoline and jet fuel, but also home heating oil um, mm. in their headquarters in Georgia. They were attacked in May of 2021, Hector, and it was a ransomware case. Um, and so, you know, they did their investigation and they kind of found out that the root cause where the hackers got into the Colonial Pipeline's network through an exposed password from a VPN account. Um, mm. The password had been used in another site that, that was then breached. Um, and the Colonial Pipeline believes that the employee account wasn't active, but apparently it was, uh, and the VPN system didn't use MFA. So mm. this giant pipeline company gets hacked into a ransomware because of a, an, a, an employee account, exposed backward, and quote-unquote inactive with no MFA. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's basically a backdoor account into their systems. And, you know, the one thing that we've discussed so many times is that a lot of these massive breaches that we've seen are the results of security policy violations or, uh, you know, inactivity of enforcement. We also see that a lot of this stuff is pretty common, low-hanging fruit attacks. You've, you have a exposed VPN service that does not have MFA enforced on an account that do, that you you know reuse the credential, and then of course that account is inactive. I mean, we've seen that so many times. I mean, well, last they thought year thought it was inactive. A, well, they thought it was inactive, but yeah. still, regardless, uh, if the account is inactive, why is it why why is it accessible? That's right? what I'm saying. Like like they didn't know yeah. it was still active. So yeah, like like uh, multiple droppings of the ball here. Absolutely. And, you know, if you are an organization, if you are part of the security team, even if you're not, let's just say you're, the, you're a CEO, you're listening to this episode today, um, you know that you have 500 active employees or 50 active employees. You go into your active directory and you see there's 120 accounts that belong to um, current and former employees. You know, probably one of the things you want to do is make sure that those former employee accounts are disabled and or removed. They don't need to exist in your system anymore. They no longer work for you. If any of those accounts are active, when, when was the last time the account was logged into? When was the last time the password was reset? Um, do you know what the password is, right? And then, of course, as you kind of go deeper into the rabbit hole, you're going to see things like, well, can this account be used to access, you know, services, VPNs, SaaS solutions? And if so, is there any protections to, to ensure that, one, that former employee doesn't have access to it? And two, even if a bad actor gets access to the account password, 
Are they able to log into any of our services? If any of those answers are yes, you failed, right? And you need to fix that and remediate that post haste. Yeah. Let's sort of get into the timeline of what happened this. So Thursday, sure. May 6th is the initial intrusion through the VPN account. Um, the attackers get in and they stole 100 gigabytes of data within a two hour window. How do you move 100 gigabytes of data in two hours without <laughs> alarms going off? How does that happen? Yeah, well, that's another set of policy violations. You should have someone somewhere looking at network traffic, right? If you don't have the resource to have someone looking at your network traffic inbound and outbound, right? E uh, egress and ingress, then you need to invest in an NDR solution, right? A, a, a network detection and response solution or an XDR or something that's going to give you an alert when there's traffic moving, especially if the traffic is moving, you know, outside of your timeline scope, right? If you guys are working nine to five, everybody goes home at five o'clock and there's a hundred gigabytes of traffic moving at one in the morning, that should be a red flag. If you're not seeing that, then you're completely just missing out on, uh, or rather you, you're dealing with a massive gap, one, and you're missing out on the capability to defend yourself. Then the next day, Friday, May 8th, the ransomware is deployed uh, and the attack involves multi-stages against uh, Colonial Pipeline IT systems that includes their billing and accounting. The public's operational technology system that moves oil was not directly compromised during the, the attack. Colonial Pipeline became aware of the breach at the time, notified private security firm, and then notified law enforcement, notified the FBI, Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, and the Department of Energy. And then this is the one that, that I didn't know about. Colonial Pipeline decided to take the pipeline offline. They shut down the pipeline to prevent the ransomware from spreading. So the ransomware, the attack, the attackers, they technically did not have access. They, we, don't, we didn't know it at the time. They didn't have access to the actual pipeline moving. So it was the company that took it offline. In your sort of mindset of breach response and that sort of thing, would you have taken the pipeline offline? Well, it depends, right? If the pipeline is accessible over the internal network or our network in general, then we're going to have to think of ways to mitigate uh, potential compromise of those systems, assuming that the attacker has the knowledge and capability to, to interact with it in whatever way, right? If there is a disconnect, meaning that these systems are separate from our corporate network, for example, then at that point, we need to get all the team uh, members and team leads on a call. Um, this might also have to include our uh, legal department. We also have to talk to uh, our law enforcement partners and uh, and so forth to kind of figure out, you know, you know, what are the risks associated with this current breach? Can it affect the pipeline? Um, and if it can, what's the worst case scenario? But these are conversations you should have prior to a breach. This is why people like to do like, uh, you know, warfare games and, and like tabletop exercises. Yeah, exactly. Um, they should already have known the answer prior to this engagement. So depending on, uh, um, you know, how the network is structured, Chris, I probably wouldn't. I'm going to assume that there's, you know, the Colonial Pipeline. Again, this is just an assumption on my end. But their sure. IT team that runs, again, the billing and accounting software is not the same technology team that runs the pipeline. Uh, True. I, I'm going to assume those are two different groups. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. And so I would think the head of the IT or whatever is run on the pipeline is, is going to say, guys, it's not part of the corporate network. 
It's yeah. completely separated. There, there's no reason to shut down the, the pipeline. Again, these are mm-hmm. all assumptions on my end. I, I'm not on the inside. I don't know. I only know publicly available information. But it just sounds pretty strange to me that because the billing and accounting software, and maybe more, maybe more in the corporate network was, was shut down by the ransomware, to take the pipeline offline, which then caused you know gas shortages on the, on the East Coast. Sure. Um, it, it raised the price of uh, gasoline for a lot of days in the United States. Um, you know, so the end, you know, the end customers were really paying the price on this one too. It wasn't just a hack of, uh, you know, uh, infrastructure just kind of strange to me. No, it is strange, but it's a tough case. It's a, it's a tough situation because we also have to look at the timeline. We're talking about 2021. This is that, you know, the mid part or midpoint of the whole COVID pandemic situation, right? There's a lot of things happening, a lot of people affected by everything else. And the one thing that we, you know, the CEO and his team was probably thinking about was, okay, we already have, uh, you know, inflation. We already have all these things happening. Uh, Do we want to be the reason why, you know, there's a collapse in in, uh, oil infrastructure in the East Coast? You know, I mean, I'm sure sure these guys did not sleep for days and they probably went through every possible scenario. Uh, now my question well, for you well, is: Well, we're sorry, we're still yeah. on the first day. Oh yeah. <laughs> so the we're still on Friday, May seventh, when the, the 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 they became aware of the attack, called in a private security, called in law enforcement, and you know, yeah, who knows who's in the, the CEO's ear, um, yeah. saying you know, do this, do that. We recommend this. We recommend that. It may not have been a connection between the pipeline and the billion accounting software. Sure. Um, it just you know, it's the way the way the history reads. Mm. So sorry, you had a question. No, no, I, I wouldn't say that I had a question, but I think I was just kind of kind of breaking down, you know, if, if I were the CEO and I had all, like, like you said, there must have been a ton of people in the, the, the CEO's ears like, hey, dude, you know, this is about to blow up really bad or things are about to get real nasty. And, you know, you, you might go you might go to jail, you know, if, <laughs> if this is negligence on your part, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. You know, I, I can't imagine what those guys went through. Yeah, probably thinking about gas lines and all that sort of thing. You know, sure. when I say gas lines, people waiting in their cars in order to fill up, uh, mm-hmm. rationing gas and that sort of thing. I'm sure all these things came through. But sure. so we're still on that same day, Friday, May 8th. Colonial Pipeline decides to pay the ransom. 75 yeah. Bitcoins, roughly $4.4 million, because as of that date, Bitcoin was a little over $57,000. Paid hackers to get the decryption key that allowed Colonial Pipeline's IT to regain con- full control of the systems. And then Colonial Pipeline CEO uh, Joseph Blount explains why he decided to pay the ransom further on during hearings. And at the time of the ransom demands was made, Blount said it was cle- wasn't clear how widespread the intrusion was or how wow. long it would take Colonial Pipeline to restore the compromised system. So Blount sure. decided to pay the ransom, hoping it would speed up the recovery process. So all within one day, he made these decisions. Yep. Um, it sounds like he did. He had not have a lot of confidence in his IT team, or they didn't know what was going on ahead of time when this happened. It definitely sounds like they didn't have tabletop exercises and a clear mm-hmm. line of communication and decision making. Yeah, no, it's it sounds like there was there was definitely some gaps there. You know, you know. Listen, at the end of the day, uh, the CEO wasn't uh, wasn't perfect. Nobody's perfect, really, right? In these situations, it's, it's like high risk, like high uh, anxiety, you know, uh, high adrenaline. And I'm sure that they're like, okay, they were like, wow, okay, we need to make a move. We need to make decisions. Uh, whether they're right or wrong, we just got to do something, right? 
again, oh. he's got two different law enforcement agencies, uh, another government agency, and then the Department of Energy is, you know, in the room talking to him. I'm sure he didn't have total control of the situation. May, yeah. Again, just assuming I've seen these things and they go bad and people Oof. are telling you, you know, you know, you have to do this. And it, 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 this worked out. Paying the ransom, they got control back. The, the very same day they became publicly aware, sure. paid the 75 Bitcoins. I'm not quite sure how they acquired $4.4 million in Bitcoins that quick unless they, you know, they, they must have known somebody. Somebody has some sort of connection. <laughs> um, got it sent over, got the keys, got back into the system all in the same day. You know, kudos on them for actually, sure. you know, it, it working out. The ransomware guys actually giving them the right keys and turning them back yeah. on. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they didn't negotiate. They gave them the full amount they were looking for. Wow, look at that. Then two days later, on Sunday, May 9th, it was a national security threat, and the president declared a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. um, and then by Wednesday, the pipeline restarted as normal operations resumed. Again, not really sure if they gained control back in the system on the 7th, what took them to all the way to the, the, the 12th, the five days to get full up, fully resumed. But sure, good on them for getting it done. Then comes mm -hmm. a really crazy part, Hector. Yeah. We're about less than a month later, on Monday, June 7th, the Department of Justice says that they recovered 85% of the ransom, uh, 63.7 Bitcoins. Now, because the price fluctuated, it was approximately $2.3 million because Bitcoin was mm -hmm. down to uh, 33, a little over, half, 33,000 sure. or so. Um, but if you use the comparison, again, 85% is really the best look way to sure. do it. So the, the the cryptocurrency moved around. The Bitcoins moved from address to address, and it finally landed on May 27th in an address and didn't move. And then the FBI publishes, uh, well, later it comes out in court, they, they wrote an affidavit about the movement from, you know, went from this, this address to this address to this address. And then they wrote, the private key for the subject address is in the possession of the FBI in the Northern District of California. And that's it. And then they sold, it. They, they sold it. Yeah. And you guys, you know, we've talked about cryptocurrency. You, you guys that are aware of cryptocurrency realize, like, how much you have to guard your private key. But for somehow, this bad guy private key ended up in the FBI's possession. And I can't figure out how it happened. <laughs> I remember seeing this part, and I was wondering, you know, just kind of perusing the internet, looking at the news. I saw this, and I'm like, how the hell did the FBI get the possession of the threat actor's private key. And I know there was like a ton of like conspiracy theories on like InfoSec Twitter, people saying a whole bunch of different things. Um, some saying that, you know, the Bitcoin must have been intercepted through an exchange. Others are saying that maybe one of the threat actors was a, an informant or an agent or who knows what. But yeah, this is, uh, to this day, I, I'm still puzzled by this. The fact yeah. that Colonial... Uh -huh. Yeah, breaking down, you know, InfoSec Twitter a little bit, and they're talking about, you know, how the, you know, the, the FBI has some sort of, you know, insight into the blockchain sure. or something like that, some sort of backdoor and all that. Let's throw that out because we haven't seen yeah. it since. You know, there's been other True. ransomwares and like that, that that we haven't seen the recovery. So, you know, I, I'm in agreement with you that somehow they had either an undercover, they had a confidential human source, they had some sort of insight that you know the bad guys didn't know about because it just seems strange that they would send it to this address you know um what is it 20 days after and then it just sat there and then all of a sudden you know 10 you know 
uh, for 11 days after the FBI, it's in an account the, the FBI has control of. Insane. Yeah. And I hope well, that one day, I hope that one day, either to make a FOIA request or a book comes out. I would love to hear this story. Truly. Yeah, I mean, I think the hackers are going to have to get caught before that story comes out. There'll have to be some sort of trial or something like that. But true, the FBI seizure of the cryptocurrency was, you know, on June 7th. Then June 8th, there's congressional hearings about this entire incident. So <laughs> like a, a day and a month after it happened. So pretty wow. fast moving how everything went through. You know, let's get into kind of what we know about the hackers of this hack. It was a, sure. a thing called uh, the group was called Dark Side. Um, I think that they self-branded on that. I don't think that was a name given to them, like yeah. uh, Dragon's Hemorrhoid or anything like that. <laughs> um, their first publicly reported activity was in August of 20, uh, 2020. And so, again, this this Colonial Pipeline hack was May of uh, 2021. So they've been active for a little less than a year. They have believed to have been paid by over 90 companies within the U.S. up to date. Um, and according to Trend Micro Eesh. research data, the United States is by far Darkseid's most targeted country um, at more than 500 detections. So wow. it seems like, you know, based on the research data, they've hit more than 500 things just in the United States and 90 of them have paid. And remember, one of their payoffs was 4.4 million. So yeah. doing pretty good money. Um, reportedly out of Eastern Europe or Russia, the Russian government has denied any involvement but one of the MOs of Darkseid is they avoid targets in certain geographical locations by checking mm -hmm. the one of the first things when they get in your systems, they check your system language settings. Um, and they will not go after any country where the or any target where the language uh, is of any of the 12 current, former, or founding of the Commonwealth of Independent State Countries mm -hmm. in Syrian Arabic. So if your settings are, are, are one of those, you are good to go. I can understand like the uh, the countries mentioned, um, the Commonwealth Independent States. We see that in a lot of ransomware. Kind of weird. They also include Syrian Arabic as the language to avoid. Um, makes you wonder if, if the actor, one of the actors, were Syrian. You know, it, it also expands the the potential um, list of countries that these actors may be from. Maybe they're all from Armenia, or maybe they're all Russian. Or maybe, remember, we talk about attribution being a problem for, for researchers, threat intel, law enforcement, everybody. Maybe they're, they're not from these 12 countries at all, right? Maybe it's some guy in Portland that... Just throwing uh, wanted, them off, yeah. Yeah, it just wanted to blend in. That's right. So, so yeah, Darkseid's known to provide the, the ransom as a service. Um, and their code uh, that they use, it resembles ransomware software that was used by Revil. Mm -hmm. um, that was a different hacking group, and their code isn't publicly available, but it suggests that Darkseid is an offshoot of them or a partner of them in the past. And so, and they use sure. a very similar structure to Ransom Note that these guys used to use. So, uh, yeah. you know, maybe some of the members from Revil came over to Darkseid. Both these groups use the same code to check for the victim's location, are not, again, part of these CIS countries. And then uh, in May of 2011, in a Russian language statement, Darkseid said that, quote, Due to the pressure from the United States, it was shutting down operation and closing the gang's affiliate 
program. So mm. they are saying they closed in May of 21, right after the Colonial Pipeline. But then sure. in April of 22, the FBI released an advisory uh, that several developers and money launderers for Black Hat, and we've talked about Black Hat with the MGM hack and the, yeah. the uh, Caesars hack, that many of the, the developers and the la- launderers for Black Hat had links to, do, to uh, both uh, Dark Side and Black Matter. So it sounds like Dark Side kind of rebranded themselves as Black Cat. Yeah, or at least some of them. It could be right, but what would if you could speak to any threat intel person, like really out in the fields, one of the one of the popular points that they like to make is that a lot of these groups are just intertwined with each other. It's a huge synergy. Uh, they're either reusing each other's code, they are reusing each other's infrastructures. They might even have the same developers. It might be just one developer group, you know, maybe three or four guys that operate out of some some place somewhere, and all they do all day is develop the malware or different malware strains, uh, kind of like a, like a software development company. To be honest with you, yeah, a lot of these FBI advisories they go, you know, they put pieces together about like you know the the not hitting countries from the the CIS and and the MO and the notes looking similar. That's mm-hmm. why you know it's just an advisory saying, hey, we think it looks like. Part of this group could be, you know, moved over sure. and just rebranded or, you know, formed with another group. So do you see that happening? I mean, back in the day, you know, wasn't hacking mostly individuals? You didn't see them, like, come together with other groups too much? Or is, the, did Lulsec change all that? Or, or what's your feelings on how, on how that, that sort of thing changed? Or am I totally missing that back in the day all hackers worked together? I mean, that is a great question. So if we're talking about exploits, there was a point in the 90s and early 2000s, at least from my perspective, I can't speak for all hackers from that era, um, but exploits those days, you could, you could get like a free, you could, you could get like a, what we would consider a multi-million dollar exploit today for free back then, just by knowing the right people and and, and maybe even trading, you know? I had I had a bunch of like local privilege escalation vulnerabilities and exploits that I developed. One was for like a F Secure Internet Gateway. Another one was for like X.org. And then so I would just go on IRC on Fnet and see who had what and just basically trade. You know, you had some channels that were dedicated to that. Um, you had groups that were dedicated to that. Then you had other groups that would release exploits for free. And the point is, from that whole slew of words, is that. There, if, if you were looking at us back then as like threat actors or threat groups, you would probably release a statement just like this, right? Well, you know, judging by methodology, judging by exploit, judging by uh, modus operandi, these groups might be affiliated. The, the reality is we were just a bunch of kids going on IRC, trading exploits and breaching systems and maybe even trading those systems for access to other things. So it was very... I wouldn't even say it was a tight-knit community because I don't think a lot of us liked each other. Now, in terms of groups working together, there were some group uh, relationships, affiliations. There were also group drama. So when I when I worked with this guy, Pantera, uh, with a four, and he had something called Fear the Beer, right? Instead of the E's, it's threes. Um, and that turned into another group. And then that turned into Hackwiser at the end. Then even like the Hackwise of Wikipedia, you see that people add my name to it because I was part of it, or people delete my name out of it. They add other names, they delete names. The reality is there's a lot of intergroup drama. And so what we're seeing here with Dark Side, Black Matter, Black Cat, Revel, changing names, it was very common back then. LulzSec was interesting because 
you know, I was basically paying homage to uh, the groups from the 90s, right? Like L8 and, and so on. And so I, I, I really was thinking that, you know, LulzSec could be like an iteration or modernized iteration of that. But even then, LulzSec didn't really work with groups. If anything, we would allow affiliates in, which you guys saw the logs, the leak logs later on, right? But yeah, a lot of this stuff, I think, is pretty much similar to how we had in the 90s, to be honest with you. The only difference is that we weren't into ransomware or ransoming people. That's the big difference. So the next story, Hector, is I know this is going to, you know, just a year off from your uh, prediction, but sure. uh, from loyal employees to cyber criminals. So not only Ooh. are guns, drugs, hacking tools, threats, stolen personal identifiable information and login credentials available on the dark net. Now, various insiders and hacking groups are also offering their services to cyber criminals looking for collaboration to help them attack organizations from the inside. So mm -hmm. now these criminal groups are trying to pay and hire people inside companies to give them inside information or even inside access to companies. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love how you made a reference to the fact that I might be a year late on this. Because <laughs> uh, that, that was my big... Uh, 2023 prediction, the year of yeah. the insider. So maybe Absolutely. it's 2024. Maybe you were ahead of the time. I was ahead of the curve. What can I say? But all jokes aside, we've seen a lot of insider threats over the years. It hasn't been too prominent because ransomware really uh, blew things up. Also, the BEC scans, right? The business uh, email compromises. That was a big one for a while, and I think it still is. You know, the insider threat is always going to be a problem for any organization, especially if they have a large, flat network or... You know, they're not on top of their access controls or privilege controls or uh, you name it. This is why Zero Trust as a concept started to really make sense for a lot of people, even though they haven't implemented yet or haven't implemented um, the, uh, the configuration or, or capability for it. It makes sense that now attackers are going to say, hey, buddy, you know, we know you work inside this corporate environment. They make about $800 million a year in gross revenue. Hey, would you like five grand? <laughs> Especially when we talk about interns or junior developers, uh, uh, disgruntled staff, even a janitor, right? Yeah. Well, the janitor so. is one of the best ones. I've always said that, you know, that sure. who looks on the back of your computer to see what's plugged in back there? You know, the janitor ha at night has access to walk around to all the computers and just plug whatever you want in the back. You know, you can plug, they can put malware in, a, you know, a mouse and mm. then just replace the mouse. And then when the mouse is plugged in, you know, sure. there's a, a little device inside the mouse that, that that's, you know, has gives access to somebody outside. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, like, like no one's held accountable. Um, in most of these breaches, you know, the, we talked about that CISO that's being charged, but that's just like for running, you know, negligence on not setting up the systems right. Uh, but like when, you know, you know, in a mid-sized company, when, you know, Sally Smith or whoever clicks on a link in an email uh, and that results in a multi-million dollar ransomware attack. Um, you know, nothing happens to Sally Smith. At least, you know, we don't see it. You know, I've never seen someone, you know, held accountable for that sort of thing. So, exactly. you know, these groups now are hunting for those people inside the company. Like, hey, just click on the link. Or, hey, what EDR does you run? You know, what software is being run here? You know, the low-level mm -hmm. IT guys, you know, hey, how is this configured? You know, they're paying for that information. And again, we're not telling people so you can go out on the dark web and start looking for jobs uh, sure. for your company. This is just so companies realize that maybe we need to start looking at some of this stuff and, and realizing Absolutely. that our employees are being offered 
you know, uh, to become part of the attack vector. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this a lot with like telco companies, right? Now there's even like, there's even places on the dark web where you'll be recruited if you work for a telco, especially here in the United States. Why? I think, I think that's one of the biggest ones. I mean, we'll get into another story about SIM swapping, but yeah. you know, these people at the telcos, at the very low-end bottom people that have access to be able to do some of this uh, SIM swapping mm -hmm. if needed is insane. Yeah, they're getting, they're getting minimum wage at whatever state they're in. You know, depending on the circumstances, five grand goes a long way. Even 500 bucks goes a long way. That's a full week's of work for you know, the, the lone employee working at a kiosk at a mall that has access to, uh, you know, millions of your customers. So something to think about. We need to kind of figure that out. I, I know we're going to talk more about it soon. So. Yeah, I mean, so these guys aren't offering just like a flat fee. Some of them are, but some of them are offering a like a profit share. Like you get X percent of whatever we get from a ransomware attack or something along wow. those lines. Look at that. So, you know, it's it's, you know, uh, there's also some some part of it where it's not just the cyber criminals looking. It's insiders that are going out proactively on these uh, darknet forums and saying, hey, sure. I work here. What do you have to offer me if I give you access? So it, it's it's starting to become an issue out there. Yeah, I mean, we saw that during the whole, uh, you know, anonymous time. You know, we had a guy from a telco reach out and try to give us access to a corporate network. And <clears throat> you had a couple different, you had people from yeah. in all different industries reach out to you and give you access for various reasons, you know? Absolutely. Uh, you know, one, because they wanted to write a story about, you know, the, the hack or something like that. So that yeah, guy was convicted. Yeah, yeah that, that guy, you know, he put himself in a bad place, but you know, he's a great, really good example of an employee that just doesn't like their business anymore. Um, and they just want to cause havoc. And hey, what if I write a story about it? Can I get famous off of this? Yeah, it's it's pretty scary. We're going to see a lot more of this as... So let, let's talk about the cycle. You mentioned there was a cycle before. We've seen this. We've talked about it. But let's assume that all of a sudden, you know, these zero days just completely disappear off the map. Okay. Uh, exploit developers stop selling exploits in the dark web or to ransomware groups. Um, or vendors, you know, put in the effort to, to, to uh, secure their code, whatever, what have you, right? Let's just assume that situation. These ransomware group operators probably want to continue making some good money. So where do you think they're going to go? They're going to go to your employees. They're going to put an emphasis on recruiting, um, not only in uh, private corporate uh, corporations, uh, but now agencies within the government, especially you know prior to uh, um, you know some sort of conflict, some political conflict. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. You know, for any of you guys that are business owners or your IT directors, CISOs, CIOs. You have to consider the fact that your network's already breached and it starts with your employees. Now you have to figure out ways to kind of deal with that issue, whether it's a layered approach, whether it's putting a strong emphasis on access controls, whether it's a strong emphasis on user training, looking at how you're paying your employees. There's a lot of ways for you to tackle this. And unfortunately, there's no methodology on how to do it right. Yeah, just an interesting thing just to cap off this story is that there was a, a group on one of these forums that was offering mm. between $2,000 and $5,000 to employees who had access to drivers at various food delivery services. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, interesting to kind of think in your mind what the spin off the type of attacks for that would be. We'll see. We'll see what happens with it. So hopefully law enforcement can get on top of this and, and sure. sort of, you know, get try to get control of some of those dark market forums that are offering these services. So, Hector, have you ever heard of a Moab before? 
the Moab. Yeah, it was it was a bomb we the United States made back in the day, the mother of all bombs. Well, this week there was a new Moab, the mother of all breaches. Oh, uh, so a super massive leak that contained data from uh, numerous previous breaches uh, that contained twelve terabytes of information. Wow, uh, and spanned over twenty six billion records was found. That is insane. Yeah, it really is. So the Moab again contained twenty six billion records, uh, and which was 3,800 3, folders, and each mm. folder was a separate breach. So. 38 separate breaches. Now, uh, they haven't been able, because it's so big, 28 bi 26 billion records. They haven't sure. you know, deduped everything and gone through it. But um, huge, huge breach. Now, they are saying they are seeing new stuff because um, it looks like it consists of, again, thousands yeah. of uh, compiled and re-indexed leaks that we'd seen before, breaches, but also mm -hmm. privately sold databases they're starting to find in this thing. Yeah, well, that's one thing, right? That's one thing that, that folks don't realize is that when you go to um, uh, you know, any of these repos, repositories on GitHub or password lists, you see a bunch of different breaches. Um, RockU, for example, is a famous one. And yeah, some of these have you know, hundreds of millions of records or passwords. Uh, most of them are just the passwords by now because folks use this for password cracking or brute forcing. Sure. I would not recommend brute forcing a 26 billion record uh, password list. But yeah, I, I'm aware that a lot of breaches that have been kept quiet over the years are being sold privately and shared amongst these different groups. So what I'm surprised is that somebody was able to put together those private breach lists and combine them with you know these other publicly treated, uh, publicly released lists as well, uh, because those are usually kept very private and they're 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 held at heart to a lot of. Uh, a lot of groups, so kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's either you know, it could be you know, a data broker, it could be, it could be almost anybody that was keeping this. Sure. But uh, I, I kind of sloppy that this thing was found, um, and, and they're saying they're probably not going to figure out who who was the owner of it. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, again, data. MySpace had three hundred sixty million records in it. Twitter two hundred eighty one. LinkedIn two hundred. The million on Twitter, 281 million. LinkedIn, 251 million. And it looks like they got some of your information because Adult Friend Finder <laughs> had 220 million. You saw that coming. I thought that was too easy. Yeah, 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 that was good. That was good. <laughs> so, again, government records from the US, Brazil, Germany, Philippines, Turkey, all over the place. You know, really, you know, people are going to get their hands on this. This is available to people. This is going to increase credential stuffing. And again, what credential stuffing is, is where they take a username, which is normally someone's email account, um, and the, the known password, and they go to all the other different sites and all, just try it, you know. Sure. Um, even if 1%, um, you know, 1% of 26 billion is a lot, you know, a small percentage of 26 billion is a lot. Um, so if you're reusing passwords, don't. This is why. If you use it on one site and then that site gets cracked, you know, they're going to try it on the other sites. And then also spear phishing attacks. You know, now people have some information. They'll make mm -hmm. it look like that company coming at you and saying, hey, we saw this username and we know you had this password. Click on this link to change or update your password. Sure. Um, so you're going to see a lot more of that with this information put out there. And we, we've also seen like social engineering campaigns, kind of touching on what you said a moment ago, where you'll get an email and the email is like, hey, you know, I've hacked all your stuff. Here's like your IG password. Here's your email password. Um, you know, send us a Bitcoin or send us, uh, 
you know, five grand in gift cards or something. Like that's the lowest of the lowest, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, low hanging fruits that we've seen. But yes, we've seen these campaigns, and I'm sure some folks have paid out of fear that their personal information will be leaked. So, uh, so real shame. But yeah, again, the, the fact that privately sold databases were on this list is interesting. Speaking, yeah. of, Hector, of that lowest of low-hanging fruits, we had a Hacker in the Fed listener reach out to us. And this sure. listener wanted to remain, you know, somewhat uh, anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she works for a U.S. government agency um, and having a real problem with people falsifying, saying that that agency is reaching out to customers through text messages. So it's called smishing. Um, it's like phishing, but through through text. Um, just a PSA, government agencies will not text you. Do not respond back to a text that says they're from the uh, government agency, whether it's, you know, whatever they, it is. I'm, again, I'm trying to keep it as anonymous as possible. Hector and I got on the phone and talked to her and kind of were helping her with some some investigative new things. And, you know, great person to work with. And, and shout out to her for, for reaching out to us for some help. Um, you know, happy to help. We're happy to help privately as much as we can. You think through things like this. But again, guys, PSA, government agencies will not text you about an issue. Oh, yeah. And they also will text you uh, a link that you have to click on that you have to submit your password or credit card details. So anything they will not yeah. set, send you a link to click on for anything. Don't click on it and ask for like there. It's going to sound convincing. The link is going to go to some weird URL. Don't click on any link. That's you know if you have an iPhone, swipe delete and report as junk. There you go. Yeah, just just a shout out, guys. Just uh, and and great on her for reaching out to us to help. You know, you know, I I've definitely been in that that place where my investigations are just coming to a dead end. I wish I had someone I felt comfortable to reach out to. You guys, if you need help with anything, reach out to us. You know, re- questions at hackerinthefed.com, and, sure. and we'll jump on. And again, we'll we'll not discuss your case or who you are or anything on the pod. We're just gonna gonna help you out with it. So, next one, Hector. Looks like the SEC government Oof. X account, formerly Twitter. I, I know yep. Elon doesn't want, he wants to brand it X, but we're going <laughs> to formally Twitter. Their account got compromised. Wow. So shortly after 4 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, January 9th, the SEC's at sec.gov X account was compromised. Um, the unauthorized party made one post at 4.11 p.m. Eastern, reportedly announced that the commission's uh, approval of spot Bitcoin exchange traded funds. Then a second post, approximately two minutes later, um, said uh, dollar sign BTC. So the unauthorized party uh, subsequently deleted the second post, but not the first. Um, And the unauthorized party also likely posted on two non-SEC accounts. So uh, they did an investigation in this and determined that the unauthorized party obtained control of the SEC's phone number associated with the account in an apparent sim swap attack so hector we got we got two things here yeah first some this guy this guy or girl figured out which cell phone number was associated with the sec's x account and then they were able to get grab control of that account so let's break down each one yeah how do you think they figured out which the cell phone number associated with the x account how'd they do it yeah well let's think about it in a few ways let's look let's look at it from the attacker's perspective so the attacker wants access to the SEC Gov account. Cool. Um, they need to know that in order for them to, well, they, they would know that in order for that, for them to access that account, they would have to log in, reset the password in some way, or just have the credentials. Cool. 
Okay, so let's assume that they made a decision. Okay, we're, we're, we need to figure out who is actually running the account. I'm sure they did some reconnaissance. I'm sure they did some LinkedIn searches and they kind of went through the, um, you know, through their initial information gathering session. That didn't really pan out for them. Uh, but let's, let's assume it did. Let's assume they found that the person is running that social media account on LinkedIn and they could have compromised that person through a, a social engineering campaign. Um, so maybe like somebody they, in public affairs or something along those lines? Sure, absolutely. They, they could have just found like, you know, the people that are uh, behind the marketing team or public affairs, um, found their names, used public resource to get their phone numbers, and then uh, and then started looking to see, you know, with some other data set, uh, whether that number was associated to this account, right? We don't know. Um, and remember, when you try to reset a password on a lot of these accounts, and you click on forgot password, it might give you some digits. It might tell you that uh, the first digit is a four. The last digit, the last two digits are a three and a nine. Um, they're looking through the list. Oh, okay, this person might be it, right? This person might be the one running the account. That's one way. To gain access to those phone numbers, are they using like non-publicly available databases like the, like, you know, the, the, I can't even think of the ones. I don't want to use a proper noun. Um, the sure. ones that like uh, you have access to if you're a private investigator or something like that. Could be, absolutely, yeah. 100%. Um, or, you know, breach databases, right, which we're about okay. to get to right now. All right. Um, the next one, we had a previous story that we just read that there was a breach, uh, several breaches, and those breaches were added, um, the credentials and accounts were added to the Moab list, right, the mother of all breaches. In that, in that article, they say there was about 281 million records from Twitter or X that were exfiltrated at some point and added to this list. Twitter, um, it was long before Elon. It was before, yeah, those records before. from Twitter. <laughs> Remember, Elon listens to the show. Of course, of course. That information could have been part of that 281 million record leak. And in that leak, you would have usernames, you would have an email, you would have maybe a password, depending um, you know, how extensive the, the attackers got into that list. I don't, I don't think I've looked at that list, but... No, maybe it's... Again, you're right. Maybe it's, that's even the truncated phone number where it's starred out except for the last two. The last two are pretty important. Sure, absolutely. But that phone number could have been in that list. That's the point, sure. right? Um, there, ho there also have been API leaks in Twitter and other social media uh, platforms as well. So if, let's say, the same person is running the social media account for the SEC and they're running the same account on IG, Instagram, or some other service that has been breached, um, then now we're talking about correlation. You would have to assume that this phone number that was associated to this other account for the SEC, maybe the phone number for Twitter. Let's give it a try. So yeah, so once they have that number, now it's up onto the SIM swap, which is a whole oh. other conversation. So yeah, so so now I have this number. How do I figure out what service that phone number is being run on? Is it on Verizon? Is it on T-Mobile? What is there? Is there a good vector of doing that? Yeah, one hundred percent. So there are resources, uh, telco resources, even the service like Trello. Uh, you sign up. They have a like a, a, tre a Trello extension that you add to your account, and you could do phone number lookups. Mm. It's kind of like a who is um, for uh, phone numbers, and it won't tell you in most cases. It won't tell you exactly who's the owner of the, the phone number. In some cases, it can, but let's assume that's not the case here. At the very least, it'll tell you who is actually the owner of the of, of uh, that phone number. Or who is the the authorized uh, uh, reseller of it or leasee of it? So, for example, if you get like a Google Voice number and you do that same lookup, 
that lookup is going to go back to the registration owner, which is going to be Google. So at that point, you can assume that it's either a Google landline, which is very unlikely, or a Google virtual number. Then you have to figure out who's providing that service to Google. Um, are they an AT&T customer primarily? Is that split up, right? In many cases, a lot of these big telcos like AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile, they'll just share services amongst each other. What was that one service that that uh, was bought out by T-Mobile recently? I forgot. I'm not sure it was um, uh, Sprint. There you go. So there's a point where if you were a Sprint a customer, and even though you have nothing to do with T-Mobile at all, ever, you might still end up in a T-Mobile breach. Why? Because T-Mobile ended up taking subscribers from Sprint during the merger or acquisition. So now you're the attacker. You did some lookups. You did some recon. You figured out who that I, who that phone number is registered or owned by. And then you go into the SIM swap process. All right. That makes sense in how they got there and how they got access and to the phone. And then um, it sounds like once they controlled the phone number, they were able to reset the password through X. Um, mm -hmm. because the multi-factor authentication for the account had previously been enabled on the account, but it was disabled. Now, this was weird. The, the, this is how this is from the SEC. So sure. multi-factor authentication was disabled by X support at the staff's request. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, obviously, you know, uh, because in July of 2023, it was due to accessing the account. So it sounds like um, they were having some sort of MFA, um, but then multiple people were were using that X account to send out messages. Uh, sure. And so it was difficult for to call the one person and say, how do I get in and use it? So they had turned it off. Once the SEC reestablished, the MFA remained disabled until the staff enabled it after the account was compromised. So MFA is back on. Um, yeah. And that's really kind of all the information we're getting out of the SEC for now. Um, they're still investigating it. Uh, I know the FBI is part of the investigation. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be pretty yeah. easy to figure out who did the SIM swap. You're going to find an employee oh, yeah. at one of these things, and it's going to be registered in the system as so-and-so did it, at least to, down to the location. Uh, sure. Maybe that person compromised a co-worker's credentials and got in there and switched it out, but... Um, it's going to at least go at least get down to uh, a, a very few suspects. Yeah. I mean, this is an implementation problem, right? So we know that security isn't convenient. Uh, it, it, is, it, it isn't convenient for a reason, right? This is where companies that have uh, multiple folks running social media really need to think about how they're dealing with MFA. If they're going to be using MFA um, amongst the team, then they need to kind of sort out um, how to be able to provide uh, MFA access to that entire team or delegates responsibility to a sole member of the team to do the post and so on um, or dedicate a computer to it or what have you. There's got to be a process for this. You cannot disable MFA just because your team, you know, it's inconvenient for them. This is what led to this compromise. Yes, the SIM swap happens. The initial reconnaissance happened, right? There's not really much you can do about that. But once you disable the MFA, you allow the attacker to just walk right into the account and start posting stuff about Bitcoin. I'm surprised these guys, uh, I mean, it was obviously a troll. I mean, you know, they, they went through all that process to, to what, spike up the price of Bitcoin temporarily, <laughs> momentarily. You know, maybe there was some financial uh, incentives there. Maybe not. But the reality is, it's like they, they went through all this trouble for, uh, you know, a very low, I would say, 
it wasn't as effective as as you know some of the other campaigns we've seen with Twitter, where um, a certain stock was targeted, for example. Uh, remember, this was before the Bitcoin ETFs were even you know uh, uh, agreed upon or enabled. Yeah, everyone it was everyone had bated breath about it coming. Them and the SEC announcing it at any time. So sure. yeah, it was one of those. Uh, right, the timing was was right in in line with that. So, I think yeah. it's easily traceable. I think we're gonna at least get to the SIM swapper. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. that might just be as far as it goes, um, unless there's some sort of traceable. But it's probably gonna come back to a cryptocurrency. We'll see how far the the government gets. We'll keep you guys updated on the case. So. Hacker in the Fed is happy to be sponsored by Cloud Solvers, the ultimate endpoint security solution. You know how vital endpoint security is, right? It's the first thing you need to worry about when you're hacking or defending against hackers. It's where the action happens 95% of the time. We talk about it every week. That's true, Chris. Endpoint security is essential for any organization that wants to keep its data and systems safe from cyber criminals. The problem is that the organizations are clueless about how to secure their endpoints effectively. They keep buying more and more security tools, but they don't know how to use them properly. They may have universal endpoint management or otherwise UEM platforms like Microsoft Intune, VMware's Workspace ONE, AirWatch, MobileIron, or others, but they don't know how to configure and deploy them for maximum protection and compliance. I see that all the time in my engagements, Chris. I work with clients before or after penetration tests, and we review the technologies they have invested in. Sometimes they have gaps in the security posture, meaning that some of the tools are not working as expected. See that a lot, actually. Back in the day, let's say uh, about 20 years ago, many products were snake oil. And I'm sure many, many of our audience could agree to that. Um, or they were not marketed honestly. It didn't do what they claimed to do. Nowadays, that's not really the case. If you pay for an endpoint detection and response or EDR tool, you expect it to do at the very least behavior analytics or integrate with some sort of sensor system or incident response platform. But here's the thing. When you buy these tools for your organization, what the salespeople may forget to tell you is that you can't just plug and play, set it or forget it, like a Ronco, old Ronco commercial, okay? Like, you know, Ronco stayed on TV for you know many years when I was a kid. I used to love those commercials, by the way. You actually have to fine-tune these products to make them effective. And they are great and they do work, but only if you put in the effort and time to optimize them for your environment. Well, Hector, that's where Cloud Solvers comes in. They have a dedicated team of senior engineers with deep knowledge on how to configure and deploy UEM platforms for maximum protection and compliance. Cloud Solvers offers a comprehensive, proactive endpoint management service that can protect your company from many types of attack, including insider errors and attacks. They have deep skills to make sure that your endpoints are continually managed and protected for both insider and outsider threats. For example, cloud solvers can ensure that USB ports are locked down, preventing an insider from copying and stealing your critical enterprise data or loading unapproved software or even malware. Nice. Okay. Well, look, cloud solvers is offering Hacker the Fed listeners a free assessment of their current environment. This is a great opportunity for anyone who's doing a penetration test 
of their core infrastructure or who wants to improve their employee security posture. Their senior architects will review your current environment and provide actionable advice to better reduce attack surfaces and harden your endpoints to internal and external threats. Contact Cloud Solvers today and let them optimize your UEM solutions to ensure that you are protected and compliant. Again, go to cloudsolvers.com and click on the contact us in the upper right corner. And from there, you want to write hacker in the Fed sent me to get a free assessment of your current environment. Again, guys, if you have a UEM solution, it may not be optimized for your business. Go to cloudsolvers.com, tell them Hacker and the Fed sent you, and get a free assessment of your current environment. Supporting our sponsors helps support Hacker and the Fed. I'm very excited to welcome a colleague, a friend, and longtime Hacker in the Fed listener to the show. On this episode, I'm interviewing Special Agent Aaron Mann. Aaron is a Special Agent with the Homeland Security Investigation Cybercrime Unit, and we're very excited to have him on the show. Aaron, welcome to Hacker in the Fed. Thank you, Chris. I'm happy to be here today. So, Aaron, as I introduced you, I, I said you're a special agent, so that means you're a federal agent, which is you know uh, close to my heart. I did that for a lot of years. Uh, but I said you're with the Homeland Security Investigation Cyber Crimes Unit. That's a long title. Can we kind of break that down a little bit so the audience kind of understand your background? Let's start at the top. Let's talk the Department of Homeland Security. So the, the Department of Homeland Security was established uh, following the events of 9-11, sort of by way of the Homeland Security Act of 2002. It officially began operations in 2003, but it was an effort to sort of bring all the disparate agencies and components uh, from the federal government that had some responsibility in protecting the homeland together under one department. So, yeah, I was doing a little research before we, we got together, and I didn't realize that the Department of Homeland Security is the largest federal law enforcement agency with approximately 80,000 officers across nine different agencies. Now, I know those aren't all 1811s, but those are still like federal law enforcement officers across all your agencies. That's huge. Yeah, that's right. We, um, I would say the bulk of those are composed primarily from Customs and Border Protection and Border Patrol officers. And th so they are federal law enforcement officers. But um, I think what we'll be talking more about today is sort of the, the 1811 job series or the, the criminal investigator special agent position. And HSI is the, the principal uh, federal law enforcement investigative agency of the Department of Homeland Security. We would have the bulk of the 1811s or criminal investigators under, the, under DHS, followed by you know, Secret Service and then all the other uh, law enforcement agencies who have 1811s. And then we've got the various uh, Office of Inspector General uh, 1811 positions under DHS as well. Yeah, so for the listeners out there, 1811 is the federal job series code um, for a special agent within uh, within the government. So I was in 1811. Uh, this is the job series. That's a special agent. I was with the FBI. Aaron is in 1811. Same job series, same job description and all that. But again, he's with uh, HSI. Um, so you mentioned HSI is a part of the 1811, the investigative arm 
of DHS. And uh, you guys, you said you're bigger than Secret Service. I think because I didn't realize that you guys had more 1811s than the Secret Service even. I think so. Yeah, I think we have somewhere in the range of six to seven thousand 1811s at any given time recently. And I think you're part of HSI's uh, Cyber and Operation Technology Division. Can you kind of describe what, what that does within HSI? So the, the Cyber and uh, CODD is um, basically the, the division that handles, um, you know, like technical operations and, and cyber investigations for our agency uh, nationwide. So underneath that, um, I am part of the Cyber Crime Center, uh, which is our headquarters component for all things cyber. And with the, the Cyber Crime Center is made up of uh, three, largely three investigative prongs. Um, that's going to be the Child Exploitation Investigations Unit, uh, the Cyber Crimes Unit, of which I'm a part, and then the Computer Forensics Unit. And so the Cyber Crime Center is, is a custom service uh, legacy institution. It was created in the late 90s uh, specifically for tackling child exploitation, but it's since grown uh, largely since then so child exploitation that's the csam stuff that's the 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 uh, that side of the house you work in the cyber crimes part um what sort of crimes and and federal offenses is handled within your your section the cyber crime section so in in the cyber crimes unit we're we're split up between technical solutions uh, digital crimes which is my uh section and then we have a network intrusion section so when you think about uh, traditional cyber crime, we, we sort of break things up into two buckets, those being the like cyber-dependent crimes and the cyber-enabled crimes. And so the network intrusion section uh, from my unit handles all of the cyber-dependent uh, crimes that you traditionally think of, hacking, intrusions, malware, ransomware, DDoS, those sorts of things. And then my section, we focus on the cyber-enabled crimes being uh, money laundering, you know, through virtual currencies, cryptocurrencies, any sort of narcotics, contraband smuggling, uh, some child exploitation, uh, fraud, anything that sort of is enhanced by the Internet or cyber, um, but is a, that it could occur outside of the cyber realm otherwise. So you said you're part of the HSI's Cyber Crime Center, or I think it's called C3 is the inside lingo that you guys use. Um, so the way it works in the FBI is we have cyber headquarters. That, and that's sort of up near you, near D.C. And then 56 field offices all have some sort of cyber component. In New York, we had a whole division that was labeled with the cyber. I know D.C. and LA, L.A. have cyber divisions. And then there's other – in the other smaller offices, they have cyber squads that are kind of part of the criminal or the national security side. And so our cyber headquarters, really, those guys supported us in our investigations. Are you on a squad that's actually support that supports the unit, or do you actually go out and investigate the cyber crimes at C three? So at, here at headquarters, we are uh, more of a support function. We do we do some limited you know generation of leads and, and whatnot for the field, but whereas the bureau may be more of a, a top down organization and pushing things out to the field, I would say to, to contrast that HSI is more of a bottom up. You know uh, the agents are. Um, conducting their investigations and coming to us for for assistance when needed. Oh, that's excellent. And, uh, I, I think that probably works a little bit better. I, I enjoy the bottom-up uh, process uh, definitely a lot better than just being told where to go and how to run my case. And when the case gets good, they come over and they oh, they, they take it over and uh, and overrun me. So I, I, I've seen it from both sides. I, I, I am a, an, an FBI TFO, 
uh, as an aside. So I, I've seen it from their side and from the HSI side. And there's, I think, pros and cons to both. But you started off as a cyber agent out in the field before you came to headquarters, right? Correct. Yes. I uh, started out in Northern California region and primarily worked uh, cyber-related uh, investigations you know, regarding cryptocurrency, darknet, child exploitation, uh, murder for hire, you know, romance scams, everything in the sort of cyber-enabled realm. Um, while I was out there, we, uh, myself, FBI, DEA, Postal Inspection Service, IRS, formed a federal task force, the Northern California Illicit Digital Economy Task Force, or INSIDE. And we primarily focused on uh, darknet narcotics and uh, cryptocurrency money launderers. I bet you have some really cool stories to tell about that stuff that we can talk about not on the podcast. That would be fun to, to, to tell war stories. That'd be great. So how did you get into cybercrime? How did you become a cybercrime fighter? Like, What kind of led you to, uh, down this path? So I've always uh, been around computers, I think, probably, you know, like 1980, mid-1980s or so. Um, I lived down the street from my grandfather growing up, and he always had computers throughout my childhood. I think I my first was maybe like an Atari 1040, if I recall. <laughs> That's old. That's old. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, always over there, you know, playing on the computers. Of course, we didn't have internet in, in that period, you know, but, you know, it had limited things of what you could do, games, word processor type stuff. But in, the, in around the mid-90s, you know, we all got dial-up internet and um, just becoming familiar. Having been on computers for so long, it, it was a pretty simple uh, transition to internet, figuring out the internet. And eventually uh, got on IRC, which is Internet Relay Chat. It was funny listening to a, a prior podcast of yours and you talking with uh, Hector about IRC and, and all of his experience with it. It really brought back a, a lot of memories. Um, for me, but that was sort of my introduction into uh, like computer administration and Linux uh, because having after having been on IRC for a while, I eventually became an IRC operator, which is sort of like the moderator of IRC. So, uh, you know, I had a friend who was an, uh, a server administrator uh, on the FNet and Dalnet networks for IRC. And eventually I began helping him, um, you know, manage the servers, manage the DDoS, uh, setting up, you know, new servers when needed and all that. And that was sort of my introduction into like Linux and, and that side of the world. And then as an IRC operator, um, you know, constantly we were you know flooded by bots and egg drops and DDoS and all these things. We had to mitigate those. And a, a lot of that, like figuring out who, who those people were uh, on IRC attacking us at the time, sort of those skills that I had to develop and hone to figure out who these anonymous connections were and whatnot. I think I didn't really think of this until that uh, episode that you and Hector talked about IRC, but I think a lot of those, those, those experiences uh, helped me in my investigations, you know, in years, years later. So were those positive experiences on IRC and FNet or like, did you enjoy doing that sort of work and it kind of led you this way or it was at the time, was it stressful because you had to teach yourself and do it at the same time and be under the live fire can be quite, quite stressful. Yeah, no, it was really fun. And I had tons of great times on IRC, made a lot of, you know, lifelong friends and we would, you know, sometimes travel and meet up together, go, go different places. Um, it, it was fun while I was doing it. You know, I was, you know, a teenager, early twenties at the time, sort of took a break. I went, uh, went the military route and then, you know, did university after, after all that. And then I sort of came into the world of 1811 and then sort of picked it back up from there. 
you got back into IRC after becoming an 1811 or? No, sorry. The getting like into the cyber realm. I got you. I got you. So, so you took a quick break to, to build your uh, studies and, and get, have a military career and then uh, got back into it. Yeah. That sounds cool. So uh, any good uh, FNet stories? You ever see Sabu online at, on FNet? You know, I, d- I don't recall. Um, it's I, I think it's probably been over 20 years now at this point. I don't recall ever bumping into Sabu, but it, it's, it's possible. Yeah that's a good story stick with that one that you weren't in the same channels as him yeah you know, whatever yeah. craziness he was involved in so did you ever when you had to deal with like operating the the irc and people were doing like ddoses and all that did you ever get involved with law enforcement or was that not sort of thing it was sort of just a self-policing on the network and, and move on from there yeah no we never had to involve law enforcement in anything we didn't have any as far as i'm aware any sort of network intrusion, you know, issues or whatever with the IRC servers at the time, it, it would be sort of uh, tackling the flooding from, you know, the IRC standpoint and then going into the actual server and dealing with IP chains or whatever firewall we're using at the time and sort of mitigating it from that end, um, but never had to get law enforcement involved. That sounds like really good experience uh, for as far as admin experience and, and running your own network. And, and again, yeah, like training to be, you know, uh, an investigator and fig- figuring things out. So more, you know, a great mixture of like cyber investigation and administration and, uh, you know, a little bit of power when you get to boot people out, too. So a lot, lot of good things on all those. Yeah, it was never anything I thought about at the time. Law enforcement wasn't even on my radar. So it was just, you know, just having fun back then. Oh, yeah, yeah, it paid off for you. It got you here. It got you down this path. And, and now you're doing some really great things and fighting cybercrime. Um, so one of the things that people love to hear about is all federal agents have to go to training. Uh, in the FBI, we have our own academy that we go to. And the DEA has their own academy that's also at Quantico right next door. But all the other agencies to learn to be an 1811 sends you off to Fletzy. You got any fun Fletzy stories or giant mosquitoes they always complain about down in Fletzy? Fletzy was a good time. Uh, it was, you know, a lot of camaraderie. Most people, by the time you get to Fletzy, I would say you're a little older in life. You know, I, I was there in my mid thirties and the, the large majority of people in my class were probably around my age as well. So, you know, you're in Southern Georgia, it's hot. You have to deal with fire ants. I, I had to deal with that several times. I, I was standing on a, a in an ant mound and found out the hard way uh, about that. What months were there? Like what? What time frame? I was there in in the hot season of Southern Georgia, oh. which is mostly year round. But I was there from like May to September. But you know, all the physical stuff we kind of got it done in like May. No, I was there March. I started March for whatever twenty one weeks. And so yeah, it was like the weather was starting to break a little bit better in Quantico. Um, so it wasn't too bad to deal with. But you know, we had the rainy spring, so we we got out of it. We definitely did not have mosquitoes, so it was good. So, but yeah, the, the FBI Academy was, was, was fun. I, I enjoyed that time, but, but you're right. It, it was like, we had the, you know, the, the former cops and the former military guys, they were all in like their, you know, early to mid thirties. And then you had the young guys that, you know, had, didn't have those experiences in the background. And I do think it was, it was a different experience for each one. So. Yeah, it's really, it's not uh, as I would say militaristic as, you know, your typical boot camp or whatever. It's more of a, a gentleman's Academy as people like to call it. Um, but there, there is a lot of you know academics, uh, tactics, firearms, firearms every day, all day. Um, you know, going over the different programmatic areas which your agency investigates. It's it's a good time. Yeah, we fired thirty six hundred rounds. Uh, it was about the the average for for in the FBI academy, and that's all in like the first sixteen weeks. So 
I remember those days of having sore thumbs loading round after round yeah. into the magazines. <laughs> yes. So, but it was good. So, do you is there specific cyber training at Fletzy? Um, let's say that someone wanted to become an HSI agent uh, and didn't really have a computer background. Could they raise their hand and get specific training either at Fletzy or after becoming an HSI agent? Yeah, so at Fletzy, it's sort of broken up into two phases. You have the first portion, which is uh, Fletzy provided instructions, you know, going all over the sort of legal and academics and training that every 1811 or criminal investigator as a whole is going to need. And then you're in the second portion is sort of the agency specific um, training. And so you're likely to get more cyber training in that second portion. Um, but ours is very, I would say, introductory and, and um, you know, it doesn't go in depth. But once you're, at least with HSI, I can't speak for any other agencies, but once you're out in the field and doing the job, um, someone who's an HSI agent could reach out to us actually in the cyber crimes unit and we can help them get uh, upskilled in the cyber realm through SANS courses and, and other training that we provide. Is that well advertised within HSI? Like if there's an HSI, I know there's other HSI agents listening to this because the, they've reached out to me. Do they know that they can get out free training? Because the FBI was not good about telling us about free trainings. Yeah, you know, we, we've, we've put the message out and we do have quite a few people taking advantage of it. But I'm sure there's you know, some, some out there who haven't. Um, if they're listening to the Hacker in the Fed, they, you know, they, they may already know about it. Um, but yeah, we, we do have um, some, some offerings in that regard. Yeah, and trainings are tough when you're a federal agent because you, you have this passion for these cases you're working on, and you don't really want to take a week to go away, and the, the case isn't really going to go. Your co-case maybe doesn't have the same passion for your case, and that, that's how we do it in the FBI. There's always a case agent and a co-case, so if you get hit by a bus, the case carries on. Um, you know, Do you guys do the same thing? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, ancillary and extra duties as an 1811 that most people just don't talk about, I guess, uh, or think about, but you, there's a lot of things, a lot of responsibilities other than investigating that, that you have to take care of as an 1811. So it's definitely challenging to find time for, you know, like a four month long course to, to squeeze it in there. But uh, a lot of people, as long as your management's supportive, you know, most people make it work. Good, good. Yeah, I definitely think trainings and keeping up with the latest stuff, you know, that was one of the big problems I know when I was doing like Lulsec and Silk Road back to back. Like you just, I just didn't have time to keep up with anything. So I kind of like just buried my head into that world. And then once I stuck my head back up, you know, some new things had come around and was passing me by. But but I caught up eventually. So so let's talk about some opportunities, career opportunities at HSI. Um, first, let's start off with non 1811s. Uh, are there positions that people if they want to get into HSI, um, but maybe they don't want to be, you know, an 1811, a, a criminal investigator? Are there other positions available? I would probably categorize those into three different positions. Um, so the one is you're familiar with the com, you know, computer forensics agent that you've got like in CART and FBI, and we have CFAs as we call them in uh, HSI, but we also have non-agent CFAs. Those are computer forensic analysts. And we typically hire those through what's called the HERO program. And that's a program where we reach out to uh, military veterans who are you know, either disabled um, or have some injury uh, stemming from military and are seeking to become a computer forensics analyst, uh, analysts. We have a program, the HERO program, that we probably hire from, I would say, twice a year or more. Um, we have what's called a cyber operations officer. That's the... Uh, for the job series, that's the eighteen. That's an eighteen oh one position, eighteen zero one, and uh, the cyber operations officer 
I would say they probably uh, mostly provide like advanced technical support in criminal investigations, and, you know, network intrusion investigations, incident response, uh, forensic analysis, um, helping out, you know, in undercover cyber operations, network exploitation. Um, I would say that's probably a good fit for those with like a digital forensics background or a CS major, or maybe even someone with like a red teaming background. Um, we have a 2210 cybersecurity specialist uh, position, and that's going to be uh, probably less involved in casework than a COO would be. Um, but they're going to be more focused on uh, sort of assisting in website development, um, you know, maybe some programming, network and hardware infrastructure. I would, I would say that's, if I had to equate it to, you know, probably what the majority of your listeners think of, I would say the COO would be more on the red teaming background and the cybersecurity specialist maybe more on the blue team background. Um, think of the, the cybersecurity specialist as kind of like the, the computer scientist role in the FBI. Sure. So, yeah, I had a great computer scientist, and he actually came with me to Naxo, Tom Kiernan. Um, I used to take him on search warrants with me, and uh, he actually came with me with the, when I arrested Ross Ulbricht for Silk Road. Do you guys ever have, like, your computer science help you um, if there's a very technical thing you need help with? Do these guys ever get in the field and get to help out? They would, yeah. So the COOs and the heroes and the 2210 cybersecurity specialists, they, you know, being not law enforcement agents, they would likely not, you know, go through the actual execution of the search warrant with us. But once the, the area is clear and safe for them to come in and sort of help out with the analysis of, of the computers or devices or whatever, that's when they would come in. Tom uh, was actually in the library when we arrested Ross, and I don't know how I got away with that. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, run and gun, I guess. You yeah. know, you, you, people, you, it's, it's been long enough now. Hopefully nobody gets in trouble for that one. So um, how about the 1811 position in HSI? Uh, wh what does that look like right now? Are there career opportunities for people? Actually, yeah, uh, this is a good time we're recording this. Um, so USA Jobs uh, is like the main portal from which we uh, solicit uh, applications from prospective uh, agents. And right now we have uh, open, I think, um, a female-only 1811 uh, announcement and then an 1811 announcement to staff offices in Puerto Rico at this time. So there are actually two open 1811 positions right now on USA Jobs. But in general, uh, interested applicants would create an account on USA Jobs and then sort of upload their, you know, their transcripts, the resume, all that information, and then uh, just have to sort of wait until an 1811 uh, position opened up. Are there general requirements for an HSI 1811? I think I think across the board for most 1811s, it's typically you know at least a bachelor's degree. Um, but I, I have known some some fellow agents who didn't have a degree, but they had significant law enforcement experience. I can't really speak to how that works, but I know um, typically it's at least a bachelor's, but that's not a hard rule from what I'm aware of. Jared, who I worked with uh, on Silk Road, he he didn't have a degree. He, he has since finished it, but yeah, he I guess he was in ICE before, so he had, you know, in C or CBP, and so he had that experience he came in with. What what in general? What sort of skill sets is is that eighteen eleven position for you guys looking for? Is does someone need to have military? Can it be any sort of background? Um, you know, is there is there something that gives someone a leg up? I mean, I know a lot of our listeners want to be federal agents, and you know, it's it's a really cool job. It's a you know, the day you get sworn in and you get your creds and get your badge is exciting. Um, you know, what 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 advice could you give them? 
um, to get picked out of that pool for 1811s? I would say, you know, a, a lot of people think that prior law enforcement would, would give you a leg up, and it probably does. I'm not prior law enforcement, law enforcement. But, you know, there's some people who have been in law enforcement too long. It's, it's maybe hard for them to unlearn some of the things they've done for a long time and learn, you know, how we do things in HSI or as an 1811. So I guess that could, you know, uh, work for you or against you, depending on who you are. Uh, but people who are just, you know, able to think quick on their feet, and, you know, just really able to adapt to any situation. I wouldn't say any one particular background is helpful. I mean, the, probably the, the best agent I've ever worked with and learned from in my time was a former tennis instructor. He had no prior law enforcement experience. He, he was a tennis instructor and he, he's an amazing agent. Um, so, yeah, I think it just depends on, on who you are. Yeah, I think, you you know, I, I, as you were answering that, I was thinking about it myself, you know, keep your nose clean. Obviously, you don't want any arrests. You don't want anything like that. Um, stay in shape, um, you know, stay physically fit because, you know, FBI Academy, Fletzy, they're going to expect you come at a certain, you know, fitness level. And, and people will ask you, like, well, well, why? If you don't have to maintain that throughout your career, why do you have to serve? Because of the training, uh, you know, the government pins a lot of money into people in order to um, train you while you're there and they don't want you to break. Um, so they want you to be in the best physical shape you can be in. Man, I certainly was for me. Um, I, I had never been in better shape and in running, I could, I could run a mile and a half in, uh, in 10 minutes, which, you know, I it couldn't, if you chased me now. Uh, so it's, uh, it's good. So, but Aaron is, uh, being an HSI special agent for the federal government, the best job you ever had. It is. Yeah. I, I love it. It's, it's something where every, you know, every day is different. No two days are alike most of the time. Um, you know, random things come at you all the time and you just have to learn to adapt and, and deal with it. It's, it's, it's a really fun job. Hey, I appreciate you coming to the show. And just so the audience knows, in full disclosure, Aaron and I grab lunch uh, about once a month and uh, get together and we talk about old Seinfeld episodes and uh, talk about TV episodes. So we have a good time. Aaron, I look forward to our next lunch and I appreciate you coming on Hacker in the Fed. As do I. Thank you again. I appreciate it. All right, Hector, it's been a fun show. I know you're traveling today. I want you to have safe travels and be okay. For the listeners out there, if you guys want to get a hold of us, again, it's questions at hackerinthefed.com. Reach out to us and we can have a, an episode with a bunch of questions. Um, download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, again, Hector, safe travels and enjoy your time in Miami. Awesome. Thank you, my friend. I'll see you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.